continuing our series on the Beatitudes today. Last Sunday, to open it, we talked about Beatitudes as a sense of geography. The way to talk about it is we're in the right place if we are experiencing those things that the Beatitudes describe. Listen now for this text, which is part of Luke's Passion Week narrative. While Jesus was still speaking, suddenly a crowd came, and the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, is it with a kiss that you are betraying the Son of Man? When all those who were around him saw what was coming, they asked, Lord, should we strike with the sword? Then one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple police and the elders who had come out for him, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a bandit? When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness, the word of the Lord. It is the most countercultural thing I'll say today, the statement that, believe it or not, we do not need to explain everything. We're in the midst of a culture where we think that more words on top of more words on top of more words will somehow fashion a new reality. If you look at the Beatitudes, Jesus spoke on the Sermon on the Mount, they contain not a lot of words and very little explanation. They contain no imperative or exhortation, no let us go and do, no ought, no must, no should. Even as these words bring us into the realm of the holy and the true and the right and the good. And in the presence of the true and the good and the right, we feel the imperative without it being explained to us. You know, it's like being in the presence of someone extraordinary, somebody whose life you know counts for something. You know that the world is different because they have lived. You spend an evening with a person like that, and they don't need to wrap it up by saying what we ought to do. We feel it. You go home after being with someone like that, feeling a little smaller than you want to, And we promise with high resolve that tomorrow our life will amount to something more than dealing with those eternal questions, what are we going to eat and what are we going to drink and what in the world are we going to wear? The Beatitudes cast their blessing into the room almost randomly. Nobody in particular, anyone, everyone, everywhere, all ages and places, The Beatitudes say their word, and the blessing goes to anyone within reach of it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, whoever you are. Blessed are the meek, whoever, wherever. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Notice how impersonal yet personal, how scattered upon all of us these expressions are. They need no commentary. But then did you notice the change? If you read all the Beatitudes going down the list, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, 
And then at the close of the Beatitudes, there's this remarkable shift. After talking to everyone in general, the pure in heart, the poor in spirit, peacemakers, meek, then it says in closing, and blessed are you. Did you notice that? And blessed are you when others revile you and mistreat you and say all sorts of things against you for my sake. It's though the writer knows that the ones who read this gospel need a special word, a personal word, a you word. For the church is, at the time of this writing, under severe circumstance. They are suffering great abuse and hardship. They are being reviled and exiled. They are targets of society-sanctioned violence. And Jesus says, blessed are you. In other words, the writer is very much aware that those whom Jesus addresses are vulnerable. Jesus is talking to those who are on the very edge of life most of the time. Have you ever thought about how much of the teaching of Jesus is addressed to those who are so vulnerable? If anyone strikes you on one cheek, Jesus said. Notice, Jesus doesn't have instruction for you if you strike one, if anyone strikes you on one cheek, if anyone forces you to go a mile, if anyone takes you to court to get your coat, if you're in the sanctuary worshiping and there you remember what? That you have something against another? No, no. That someone else has something against you. Have you ever noticed how much of what Jesus said was addressed to victims. Maybe this is because he was around people who were so vulnerable, living in this land under an army of occupation, random, senseless acts of violence, hostility, assault, no rights at all, extreme poverty. And Jesus said, blessed is everyone who is vulnerable. Maybe Jesus talked to victims of violence and abuse and ostracism because they came close to Jesus. They heard it in his voice. They saw it in his face. Sympathy, understanding, and it attracted people to Jesus. Maybe that's why Jesus spoke about victims so much. Those were the ones who were around him. Maybe Jesus knew what we so often forget. There are more who are vulnerable at any given time or in any given room than we are aware. It also could be that they found Jesus to be a victim. This one who knew what it was to have spit run down his face, to be cursed and lied about, to be mistreated and slapped and mocked, to be nailed up and made fun of even as he died. Maybe that's why they came. Jesus is a kindred spirit. He was a victim. But that's not how it is with Jesus. Jesus had things done to him, horrible things, hateful things, but he did not change who he was. Victim in the end did not define Jesus. Through it all, he maintained the dignity that he could claim as a child of God. In 1936, the 27-year-old James Agee spent a summer with the sharecroppers in northern Alabama. 
The result was his book, Now Let Us Praise Famous Men. The chapter after chapter simply described the people he met in northern Alabama that summer. One of his descriptions was of a black man who worked at a sawmill, middle-aged man, and he worked at the sawmill, and most of his work involved taking care of the mules. He was treated in the 1930s kind of like one of the mules. He probably got around the same pay as the mules. He was a tragic figure, except four times a day, in the morning, in the evening, to begin lunch hour and to end lunch hour. He walked over to a wire hanging from some machinery above, took out a pocket watch from the bib of his overalls, connected by a greasy shoestring, and precisely at the right time, at the tick of the hour, he pulled the wire and the sawmill whistle blew and people started to work or they stopped working or they went to lunch or they came back to lunch. And he was the one who pulled the wire. A.G. says it was that simple act of pulling the wire that enabled him to go home at night and sit at the head of the table and command the respect of his daughters and his sons. He was a victim. In 1930s northern Alabama, there is no question. He was a victim. But he refused to be a victim. Decades ago, Harvard psychologist Robert Coles gave a talk that was billed to be about vocation. What he talked about was the importance of making decisions. Not about what we should do with our life, but what kind of person we should be. He told a story about one six-year-old girl named Ruby. She was one of three African-American children who were the first to be sent to previously white schools when integration came to New Orleans. For days and months, every single time she went to the school, she was escorted by a federal marshal. And Ruby would walk past this screaming mob of people who were yelling all sorts of things at this six-year-old girl. They were yelling at her and spitting at her and saying they wanted to kill her. And they were there every time she went into the school, and they were waiting every time she came out of the school. During these months, Coles would ask Ruby the same question over and over again and always get the same answer. How are you doing, Ruby? Fine, she would respond. And then one day, Ruby's teacher noticed something as Ruby was walking past the mob. It appeared that Ruby was talking to the people in the mob. So Coles questioned her, Ruby, what were you saying to those people out there? And she responded, I wasn't talking to them, I was praying for them. Coles was astonished. Why? Why would you pray for these people? Because I should, Ruby said. Do you always pray for them, Coles asked. Oh yes, the six-year-old said. I pray for them every morning. I try to remember to pray for them every afternoon and when I say my prayers at bedtime. And when Coles asked Ruby what she prayed for, Ruby replied, I pray Father forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Vulnerability in our lives can be seen as giving up everything. Vulnerability can be seen as being fearful and confusing and so uncertain. 
Vulnerability can make us feel so powerless. It can also be the place where we come to understand that we are children of God and that you are blessed because you're in the right place with that vulnerability, hard and painful as that can be. And this does put us in a difficult place. How do we live a life of vulnerability, whether we choose it or it's just foist upon us, and not let that either make us passive in the face of injustice and hostility, but also not make us want to strike back the way the world always strikes at those who are vulnerable. In the garden, on the night of Jesus' arrest, Jesus was as open and vulnerable as he ever was, and when they approached him to arrest him, his followers struck back. One of them struck the slave, the vulnerable slave of the high high priest, and cut off his ear. And at that, Jesus, vulnerable, child of God, child of hope, child of love, Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched and healed the slave. No more of this. We would do well to remember those words of Jesus in all the vulnerable places in our lives and all the vulnerable places we see in our world. You're in the right place when you are mourning the pain of this world. True mourning is hard. You're in the right place when you're poor in spirit, just emptied out of everything the world seeks to fill us up with, open and vulnerable to try to be filled up by God and live as a child of God. Look at our vulnerable world this morning. No more of this. No more of taking the fears of our neighbors and friends, along with those we barely know or who are strangers to us, and using that fear to exploit some advantage the way the world always does with those who are vulnerable. No more of this. No more of religious leaders on TV who say that they, of course, follow a vulnerable Jesus, then then use religion to stir up enmity in service of some invulnerable truth. No more of this. No more of blaming the vulnerable for every bit of their vulnerability. A decade ago in Atlanta, it came out that there were a handful of folks living on public assistance but living in a fairly nice, almost luxury apartment in a wealthy part of the city. And when this came to light, a group of wealthy homeowners became outraged, and they demanded a public hearing. The night of the hearing came, and the first person to go to the microphone was a young mother with a baby on her hip. She shared how, when she found out she was expecting, the father of her baby took the car and all their possessions and left and left her with nothing. She got a job as a maid at a local motel, and she told the hearing that if she didn't have the apartment, she couldn't have the job, and if she didn't have the job, she couldn't feed her children, and she pleaded for this little trial program of assistance to continue. 
the very next person to the microphone was a homeowner who said that he and his wife had poured their life savings into their home and they wanted their investment protected. And then he turned around and looked right at the young mother and said, I understand how you feel, but I earned mine. And now you've got to go out and earn yours. Can we, can we say no more to this division, this talking past each other on any value that is below a gospel value. When we're all swallowed in fear and pain, we are all swallowed in fear and pain. Can we say no more of this? These Beatitudes tell us that we're in the wrong place if we let happen this to vulnerable, to the searching, who are many times us, We are the vulnerable more likely than not, along with every single one of our neighbors. Can we say that we are in the wrong place to those that we just roll over who just want to live their lives given to them by God, named by God as precious and loved in this world that God created and redeemed? The time has passed for us to ignore all our vulnerabilities. In that garden that night, Jesus and all his followers were so exposed. They were so vulnerable. They were so persecuted. What was the way forward? They did not rush to embrace their victimhood. But neither did they strike back and give up their vulnerability. They wanted to stay in the right place, hard as it was, to be blessed in that right place, even as they were persecuted. It's important, I think, if the shade of difference is not too subtle, it's very important for us to be able to say, Jesus called to himself those who were victims. But it's not right to say, Jesus called us to be victims. That is not right. In the garden that night, Jesus reaffirmed the dignity and grace of God when he said no more of this and stopped the violence of his own followers and stood up to the taunts and threats of those who came to take him. This was familiar terrain for Jesus. He had been living this terrain. For he has said, if anyone slaps you on one cheek, Don't slump in the corner and say, now I belong to the company of the slapped. You turn the other cheek as a way of taking control of your life in God's image. Take control and initiative with dignity. But Jesus, they said, we're victims. If anyone, Jesus said, if an oppressive soldier says, take my pack one mile, take it a second, But Jesus, they said, we're vulnerable. We shouldn't have to do that. We haven't done anything wrong. If you're in worship, and while you're offering your gift at the altar, you remember that someone has something against you. You leave your gift right there at the altar. Go take the initiative. Live into the dignity you have of God's intention and make it right, and then come back. But Jesus, they said, surely you know what it's like to be a victim. You were vulnerable. 
They spat on you. They slapped you. They abandoned you. They made you suffer injustice. They left you to die in the agony of your own blood. They crucified you. Jesus, you know what it's like to be a victim. Weren't you a victim? And Jesus said, no, no. A thousand times, no. But they took your life, Jesus. Oh, no, they didn't. Oh, no, they didn't. No one took my life. I gave my life, Jesus said. I gave my life. 